0: And our lesson for this fourth Sunday of Advent comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, this is King David, and Yahweh had given him rest from all his enemies around him, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. But it happened that night that the word of Yahweh came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says Yahweh, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me? "'A house of cedar. "'Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, "'Thus says Yahweh of hosts, "'I took you from the sheepfold, "'from following the sheep, "'to be ruler over my people, over Israel. "'And I've been with you wherever you have gone, "'and have cut off all your enemies from before you, "'and have made you a great name, "'like the name of the great men who are on the earth.' Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, Yahweh tells you that he will make you a house. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that your spirit who has inspired this word, your spirit who has preserved this word, would now lead us into understanding and right application of this word. So Father, fill me with your spirit as I deliver this. Fill us all with your spirit that we might hear deliver us from every distraction, from every unhelpful thought, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Many secular Christmas songs put a lot of effort into manufacturing nostalgia for a place called home. We we could list many of these. There's no place like home for the holidays or I'll be home for Christmas. There are other Christmas songs, secular songs. They don't have home in the title, but they still conjure images of, of sweet Christmases of years past. White Christmas paints a picture of a simpler time, Uh, Christmases of my childhood just like the ones I used to know. Nat King Cole sings about folks dressed up like Eskimos, turkey and mistletoe, toys and cold noses. These songs share a collection of images from a simpler time that evoke memories of the safety and the comfort and the peace of a happy family and happy home. Uh, There's another one, Please Come Home Home for Christmas, that makes these bold promises. There are all these pledges in this song. There will be no sorrow, there'll be no grief, there'll be no pain if only you come home for Christmas. And all these songs carry us by way of our imagination to a place, a a mental image of a place where we have taken rest from our work, we put our feet up next to a roaring fire, we have a nice hot beverage in our hands, our children wearing footed pajamas are playing peacefully with their artisanally crafted wooden toys that don't need batteries. Uh, There's Christmas music playing on the record player, and we look out the window to see snow softly falling outside. That is the image that's conjured by all of these songs. Now, for some of you, these songs may call you back to actual memories of actual real Christmases that were very similar to the ones that are described. But I suspect that for many people, these songs only create a longing for something that we've never had. Did anyone really grow up having chestnuts roasting on an open fire? Is that something your dads did? I don't know about you, but it's not something I ever, I ever had. And, and so we have these images of things that never really existed, that really weren't, weren't a, a thing. Uh, I, I never had figgy pudding either. I don't know what that is either. But our lesson for this fourth Sunday of Advent is a song that points us to a different home. Not a home of sentimental fantasy, not a home of Norman Rockwell nostalgia, but... It creates a longing for our true home, the house that God is building for his people, the house that God is building with his people. It's a house made up of his people that God has promised to build. And he makes this promise to David. It's the promise that the angel told Mary about in the gospel reading this morning. It's the promise that we sang in Psalm 89 just a few minutes ago, this promise that God would build David a house, and out of that house would come a savior. So in 2 Samuel 7, we open this chapter. Of course, whenever we do this, we're jumping into the middle of a story. We're we're jumping midstream, but we find David at rest. He's king in Jerusalem. He's dwelling in a safe, warm house. For the very Uh, first time in a long time, the land has rest from warfare. David has taken the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites and with that action, he has effectively formally ended the conquest of the land that began all the way back with Joshua. So the city of Jerusalem has been won, it's been secured, heathen tribes and heathen territories that had gone unconquered in the land of promise all these years, these tribes have now been subdued And so David hangs up his war bow, he lights a fire in his fireplace, he puts his feet up and he looks out the window and observes that while he enjoys all of this luxury, all of this comfort and peace, that the house of the Lord is looking pretty shabby by comparison to what he enjoys in his palace. So he determines that the best thing that he can do, the best thing that he could do to pay the Lord back for all of these blessings is to build the Lord a house, and this seems very reasonable, of course. This is what you do when the Lord has given you victory and when you've spoiled your enemies. You build a house. This theme is throughout the scriptures. We win a victory over our enemies, we take their plunder, plunder and we build a house. Whenever Yahweh defeats his enemies, there is a house built out of the plunder. There's a sanctuary where God rests as his throne. He, God lights a fire on the altar, and there God enjoys the fellowship and the communion of his people. Uh, Peter referred to this last week in his sermon. The Lord delivered Abraham from his enemies and he transferred the wealth of these pagan kings to Abraham and Abraham takes the wealth and, he, and his house is established. Abraham's house is built and he Abraham goes through the land building, building altars. It's in seed form with Abraham. It comes in a fuller sense with the Exodus. After the Exodus, the spoils of Egypt go to build the tabernacle, and there God lights a fire on the altar, and God tabernacles with his people, he dwells with his people, he moves with his people in the wilderness in the tabernacle. Much later, after the Babylonian captivity, the Persian king Cyrus sends his riches and sends his resources with the priests and the Levites to go rebuild the temple and the city, go relight the fire on the altar, restore the city and restore the temple in Jerusalem. All of these events point us ultimately to Jesus who defeats Satan and his armies at the cross and then, and then in the resurrection victory of our savior, he plunders Satan's kingdom and he builds a new temple, which is the church. He lights a fire on Pentecost and then he sits and he drinks wine with his bride. All of these stories point ultimately to the work of Jesus. David gets this. David understands, David is a master theologian. You read the Psalms and you see he has a handle on who the Lord is and and what pleases God and, and how to pray and how to worship and how to seek God's good pleasure. So David is a master theologian and he knows what comes next. All the enemies are defeated, all the plunder is accumulated. On top of this, David knows Deuteronomy 12. I'd love to read the whole thing, but I'm just gonna cherry pick a few verses from Deuteronomy 12 because way back in Moses' day, uh, God said, this is what's gonna happen. You're gonna defeat all your enemies and then it's gonna be time to build a house, to designate a place where you worship me. In Deuteronomy 12, uh, these are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which Yahweh God of your fathers is giving you to possess, all the days that you live on the earth, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree, Okay, check, David's done that, that's that's happened. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from their place. Okay, that's, that's done. You shall not worship Yahweh your God with such things, but you shall seek the place where Yahweh your God chooses out of all of your tribes, to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. So there is to be a dwelling place, and if we read further in Deuteronomy 12, we see that the Lord says, I don't want you, when this time comes, I don't want every man building his own altar under every tree. I want there to be one central place where worship is directed in an orderly way by my Levites. I want it done the way that I want it done, and I want there to be a place where worship happens. So. David knows this, David knows Deuteronomy chapter 12. All the enemies are subdued and this is the time, David thinks, where the Lord is about to designate a place, a special place where worship is to happen in an organized way and according to the prescribed way that the Lord had had given them. So David knows that this is supposed to happen and presently things are in disarray For, for many years all the way back to the time of Eli the priest when Samuel was a very young boy. Remember, the old prophet Samuel is the one who anoints David as king when David is a young man. So when Samuel was a young boy, that's how many years ago it's been since we've had a functioning tabernacle in Israel. When Samuel was very young, the tabernacle was torn in two. Remember when the Israelite army took the Ark of the Covenant out of the most holy place and they took it out and they used it as a good luck charm in their battle with the Philistines. And what happened was the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant. They, they plundered it and they took it and put it into the temple of their god. And of course that brings the Philistines all kinds of trouble and sickness and heartache and um, the, the statue of Dagon falls down and is broken and eventually the Philistines send it back to Israel, but it doesn't go back into the tabernacle, it doesn't. For all of these decades, the Ark of the Covenant has been in one place and the, and the altar has been in a different place. The, the tabernacle has been divided. There have been two separate locations. David wants to bring them together. This is good and this is right. It's good to bring them back together. It's also good to desire that the house of the Lord be a beautifully ornate, well-maintained place. You don't want your house of worship to look worse than the house where you live. You, you wanna take better care of the Lord's house than you do your own. So if you, if you live in a mansion and worship in a rundown shed, it's easy to see where your priorities are. Later on in the book of Haggai, after the Babylonian captivity, when the people start the building of the temple, but then they give up, they get the foundation laid, and then they go away because of discouragement and various reasons, and there's, there's weeds and grass growing on the, on the temple mound. The prophet Haggai comes along and he says, "'How long will you dwell in your paneled houses?' You've got all these fine homes that you built for, your, for yourself. "'How long will you dwell in your paneled houses "'while the house of the Lord lies in ruins?' That's essentially the same thing that David is observing here. Here I am in this nice house and the Lord's house is torn in two. So David is convinced that it's time to build the Lord's house and he runs it by his friend, Nathan the prophet, who responds this way in verse three. Nathan says to the king, go, do all that is in your heart for Yahweh is with you. David seeks good counsel from the prophet and Nathan agrees with David, hey, I think think you're right have at it. Let's go. Let's get this started. The only problem is, is that the Lord does not agree with David or Nathan. The Lord says, this is not the time to do this. Yahweh has different plans. Yahweh speaks to Nathan that night, and he says, Nathan, that tent has been my home for many years. Did I ever complain in all that time? Have I been asking you, to, to build me an architectural building, a, a house of cedar right now? Did I ever say that the tabernacle was not sufficient? Here's what I want you to tell David, the Lord says. I want you to tell him that before he makes me a house, I want to make him a house. In fact, I will. I will make him a house. There is a little play on words there. Before David builds me a house, I am going to make David into a house. That's the, that's the promise. And, and this is, I mean, this is just like Yahweh, right? This is vintage. This is vintage Yahweh. This is classic Yahweh. David thinks he's going to repay the Lord for all the good things that he has received from him. All the deliverances, all the victories, all the blessings that David has received. I'm, I'm, I have now an opportunity, Lord, to pay you back I mean, you're you're not gonna believe the nice house that I'm about to build you, Lord. And the Lord says, no way, it's not happening. We're not doing that right now because I'm not done blessing you. Let me finish what I'm doing with you. Let me bless you, grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, blessing upon blessing, It's like on Christmas morning when your four-year-old daughter is up to her eyeballs and wrapping paper and boxes and all the, you know, accumulation of debris as she's unwrapped all the presents. And she thinks she's going to say thank you or repay you with a picture that she's drawn with crayons. And you say, oh, that's that's so nice, sweetie. I'm going to I'm gonna treasure this forever. I'm gonna put it on the refrigerator, this is nice, and go get that big box over there in the corner with your name on it. I'm not done, I'm not done blessing you yet. I appreciate the effort, very nice. Now go get that big package, that's yours as well. God intends to lavish more blessings on his son, David. And so picking up where we left off just a few minutes ago, this is what the Lord tells Nathan to say to David. Just a few more verses, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Well, you can see why this is the reading on the fourth Sunday of Advent, why we read this on Christmas Eve, because we have all these wonderful promises here about the reign of David's greater son, Jesus, the greater King, the Messiah who is to come. And all this Advent, we've been reading these promises of the future coming of the Lord Jesus. And here we find the promise that one of David's descendants will be the very son of God. That's in verse 14. I will be his father and he will be my son the the one that that god has promised to david the one who will be his son is the one by whose obedience the kingdom and the throne will be established forever and there it's, it's by his obedience. So there's this language in there about chastisement, about, about blows, and the Lord receives those. The Lord Jesus re- receives chastening and blows, not for his own sins, but for, but for our sins. But it's built by his obedience. His obedience is central, his obedience is key. And so God is promising here that David's house is the house from whom God's mercies and blessings will flow to the whole world. It's very similar when you remember the promises God made to Abraham. What does God say to Abraham? I'm gonna make you a great name. I'm gonna build you a great house. Your descendants are gonna be as many as the sand of the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky. And now God essentially says all these things to David with this added bit of information, we find out that, that his son is the one who will ascend the throne and will reign forever. It's going to come through David's family, through David's house. And so the Lord is partly agreeing with David. David, you are right, it is house building time. The land is subdued, the enemies are plundered, you have rest in your house, is it house building time? Absolutely, David, but it's time for me to build your house, David, with my son. That's what God says to him. So the priority of God at this point in history is on building up the people to establish the people first. The people are the house. The people are the home. The people are the temple. You get to the physical architecture later, but the people are the house. Now, what what is a temple anyway? Let's think for just a minute about David's desires and what Solomon actually ends up doing when building the temple. The temple is a house or a dwelling place for God. God dwells with his people at his house But of course you can't contain the God of creation in a temple built with human hands. So in one sense, the the whole creation, the whole cosmos is the temple of God. Heaven and earth are the temple of of Yahweh. So in one sense, all of creation is his temple, but in a more particular sense, very often he refers to his people as the temple. When you look at the, the construction of the tabernacle, and the temple as well, the architecture symbolizes the people gathered around God. The beauty of the building reflects the beauty of the bridal people. just a few examples of this. When you walk inside, if you're a priest, you get to go inside the tabernacle and you see a table. And on the table is 12 loaves, the table of the showbread, literally, if you want to translate that literally, it's face bread, It's 12 loaves whose faces are illuminated by the lampstand in this holy place. These 12 tribes live in the light of God's favor, in the light of God's blessing all the time. We have a, a picture of the people there. We also have the altar of incense where the incense is always going up producing a sweet fragrance just as the worship and the prayers and the psalms of the people produce a sweet fragrance before before God. The walls of the tabernacle are not made out of wood. They're not made out of uh, stone. They're curtains for the most part. There are uh, uh, bars and brackets and sockets and and there are boards, but but we have curtains that are uh, the walls that make up the walls of the tabernacle. Now, curtains are not great defenses as somebody wants to breach the perimeter of the tabernacle they can, except for the fact that we have Levites stationed around. Armed Levites guarded the tabernacle, and then the tribes are camped in an orderly fashion around them. So what are the walls of the tabernacle? The people are the walls of the tabernacle. The people are the walls of God's dwelling place. So the true tabernacle is the people. The physical tabernacle is a representation of the true Tabernacle, the the temple in which God's glory rests is Israel. And then specifically, one Israelite in particular. What what did Jesus say? He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. And and they thought he was talking about the building, he was talking about himself. He is the temple. Jesus is both son and temple. He's both son and house. Uh, The Lord loves to mix metaphors, right? Jesus is the high priest, he's also the sacrifice. He is the son and he is the house. Now, what the Lord is teaching David here is that the temple that that Yahweh is focused on building right now at this time in history is the people. The physical stone temple will come later. That's only a representation of the true temple and that building will be temporary. It'll be torn down, it'll be replaced by another one and that one will be torn down. The people are eternal. And so the reason that God is saying no right now to the stone temple is because he wants them to see that the real construction effort going on right now is to build themselves. Now we're, we're familiar with this language in the New Testament. We see this um, in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter three, where um, we read that uh, y'all, you all are the temple. It's second person plural, so, so it's ye in the King James. Uh, and whenever you see ye, it's, it's you all, or, or y'all. You all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But in 1 Corinthians 6, it gets super individual. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why you don't uh, fornicate. That's why you don't, don't sin. That's why you don't carry your, your body in, in, in wickedness because your, your, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So both in a corporate sense, the church, and in an individual sense, we all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in 1 Peter 2, Peter says, you are living stones built up into a spiritual house. This is so familiar to us, we know this. You've heard all your life, the church is not the building, it's the people, right? But it's, it's, it's not simply a, a New Testament innovation. It's not something that just pops up in the New Testament, like okay, That old building's coming down, and now, for the first time in history, the people are the dwelling place of God. No, it's always been this way. This has always been true. And this is curious the way that David refers to this in the Psalms. David writes several of the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are Psalms that you sing as you go up to worship at God's sanctuary, as you go up to worship at God's holy place. Now here's what's curious is that that doesn't exist when David writes the Psalms. Uh, David writes Psalm 122, which, which describes going up to the house of God. But the temple's not built yet when David sings that, when he writes that. David wrote Psalm 27, where he says, I want to meditate in the Lord's temple all my days. Well, He's not talking about the temple of Solomon because it's not there. In Psalm 65, he says, "'Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, "'that he may dwell in your courts. "'We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, "'of your holy temple.'" Now, what is he doing there? Because Moses' temple doesn't exist. Moses' tabernacle is torn apart. It's in two different places. Maybe, possibly, he's talking about the tent of meeting that that kind of fills that space. But, but even that, is that, is that God's sanctuary? Is that God's, is that God's house? If God has a house, why is he asking to build him a house here? So the, He's not talking about the tabernacle because it's torn apart. He's not talking about the temple that hasn't been built yet. So, so what, is he, what does he mean when he says, I want to dwell in your courts. I, I'm satisfied with, the, with your house, the house of your holy temple. Uh, he's referring to, he's got to be talking about what he understands and what Nathan the prophet tells him here is that the people who worship in songs and prayers and offerings, they are the house. God's house, God's God's courts, God's temple, primarily and most significantly are the people. The people are the house. Now with that in mind, we can read these promises that God makes to David and we see, well, God's not saying, you know, I really don't ever want a house and I don't care about architecture and I don't care about buildings and I'm really just happy with nothing. I'm happy with a tent. Don't don't ever bother with building a house for me. No, that's not the idea at all. That's not what God is saying. The temple will be built at the right time. And when it is, even then, it'll be a reflection of the people. But it's only after the people that have been established, it's only after David's house has been established that he's concerned with putting up buildings. And this, this is still true today. You wanna to start a faithful congregation, you don't start with a building. You don't start by building this magnificent uh, structure and then just hoping that people will show up in it. In fact, there are all kinds of beautiful buildings in our city, whole kinds of, all kinds of beautiful buildings around here. I don't have anybody in it. And uh, certainly don't have the, the gospel. They've got a rainbow flag, you know. They've got a they got a priestess presiding over things, but they don't have they don't have the gospel. Um, and uh, you know, we we can get kind of jealous and think, why why aren't we in a strip mall and all these you know heathens get get these beautiful buildings? Well, it's because of what's going on here. That first, the people are established. The the people, God works on the people. He builds up the people, and then you get the architecture. Now, I think about the Lord's providences to us as a congregation that, if we had tried to build a building five years ago, and of course all of our all of our attempts at that were were cut off and were all thwarted uh, by God's mercy and by God's providence. God said no to all of our prayers and wanting to build. But you see, if we had we. Uh, we we would have uh, shortchanged ourselves. We wouldn't have enough room for the blessing that God has provided this congregation over the last few years. You see what's God doing? He's first establishing the people. He'll the building will come when He's done putting the people together. That's how we start with the people. Well, you we start you start with the Word of God, right? Preached and sung. You start with water and bread and wine. You put Jesus in the middle, and then the people gather around Jesus. And then once once the Lord says, yeah, the people are established, then you get the building. This is not only the pattern, of, this is the pattern of history. First, the sun is enthroned as king, the people are gathered around the sun, a people are gathered around the sun, and then the whole world is rebuilt as the temple of God. We praise Jesus, we gather around him, and then we redesign the physical structure of the world into a temple well-pleasing to God. Now, all of these promises come to David, And this should have shaped David's purposes and his priorities for the rest of his life. David should have listened to this and said, okay, my goal, the focus of my life is not on a building project of of a physical building. The goal of my life is to to work with Yahweh under Yahweh's good pleasure to establish my family, to establish my, my home. But tragically, David did not do that. He didn't do well with his own house. Very shortly after these promises, David sinned grievously with Bathsheba. He had his neighbor put to death. And then for the rest of 2 Samuel, we read about the disintegration of David's family, tragic disintegration. Now, did God's mercies prevail over David's failures? Absolutely, but not without a great deal of suffering and heartache and sorrow. Sin has great consequences. Often sin has irreversible consequences in this life. God is merciful, but sin still hurts. Now, you might have been tempted to think at various points in your life, well, look how badly David messed up. David, you know, David messed up and God was merciful to him. I never committed adultery. I never had my neighbor put to death. Uh, I never had my neighbor killed. Surely God is gonna give me a pass because he was just so long-suffering with David. I I can sin and it'll all just kind of work out, right? It'll all work out. Well, You're right on one part. God's will will be done, absolutely. But you won't enjoy the blessings of it. You won't share in the fruits of that in your life. So you can either participate in God's order joyfully, obediently, with great security and great blessing, or you can watch God's will be done in spite of you while everything around you falls apart your marriage, your children your work, everything languishes because of your wickedness and your passivity. The point is, there's, there's no loophole to obedience uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no loophole. We don't point to David or Solomon and say, well, they sinned. Why can't we get away with it? No, they, they had great consequences, and, uh, and, and so will you. Well, one, one thing, how, how might we think about this account from a practical standpoint. I Just have one driving thought here, one one application to to focus on uh, by way of application. Do you see, in, in listening to this account, do you see that it is possible for you to want something that by all accounts, by all accounts, it looks like the right thing to do, but it becomes clear through God's counsel, through God's directing and his providence through the things he blesses and the things that don't obviously have the blessing of God, does it Does it seem? Does it become clear that there are things you want to do, but the answer is this is not the right place. It's not the right time. You're not the right person to do it, just as he did David. David wanted a very good thing, and the Lord says, yeah, that's great, but, but we're not doing that right now. You're not the one. You're not the one doing it. Do you see that God moves us through various seasons of life where we are equipped and called to focus our strengths and our resources in one place for a particular direction for this time because this right here, this is how God is establishing our life. We want to do this thing. It looks really good, but that's, it's not over there. It's here that God is establishing our life. If you look at the life of David, you see this. His life is a parable of this this truth. David had several phases of life with different duties and expectations at, at each stage of life. As a boy, he learned how to trust God. He learned how to defend his father's sheep from predators. And the lessons he learned there helped him in the next stage of life as a young man. He defeated Goliath. He had to submit to the wicked tyrant king Saul. He had to honor Saul in spite of Saul's wickedness. And then when David becomes king himself, David has to deal with insubordinate tribes who don't recognize him as king. David has enemies inside and outside of his kingdom, and and David has to fight as a warrior. And now, when we come to chapter seven, the land has rest, and God says, I need you to focus on something else right now. We're not gonna focus on a construction project. We're gonna focus on your family. Your family is the project. Your house is the project. And so the same thing happens for us through, through various stages of life. Faithfulness for a toddler looks different from the fruitful living of a 10-year-old or a teen or a young adult. Marriage and childbearing and our occupations bring with them different responsibilities and opportunities to bear fruit specific to each season of life. And this is how God builds our house. He builds our house by saying, no, this is what I have for you right now. This is the spouse, these are the children, this is the job, this is the work that I have for you to do. Psalm 1 talks about the godly man being being like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit, not another tree's fruit, it brings forth its fruit in its season. Apples have a season, peaches have a season, there's fruit that you bear in the season for bearing that fruit. And that fruit is for the blessing of men and the glory of God. So as God establishes your house, he brings you through seasons of life and the godly bear fruit in these seasons. You think about your life and you think about the various stages of your life. When you're young and single, there are all kinds of good things that you want. You're pining for all kinds of things to happen right away. You need to get your life figured out, get your education, get your career started, find your spouse, figure out where you're going to live. You got to go get this all figured out. And sometimes it's like, I got to get this figured out yesterday. I I mean, right now, I'm I'm tired of waiting. I'm I'm impatient. And then um, uh, the Lord has a way of slowing you down. Because you need to, in this time, in this phase of life, you need to bear the fruit of patience. You need to learn how to wait on the Lord. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about what patience is. Patience is not passivity. Patience means controlling the things you can control, and you trust God with the things that you can't. You're faithful with what God has given you to do, but you trust him with the rest. And so you do this. In this phase of life, you learn how to be patient and learn for God to send you the blessings, the spouse, the job, the opportunity, the place to live, these things come to you as you're faithful because you're learning patience and then you get to exercise that patience because you've, you've, you've learned it, How you get to exercise it with your spouse and you get to exercise patience with the babies because they need lots of patience. And then as your children grow and as you grow into your calling, you start to bear the fruit of perseverance at work And at home, you have to keep doing the same thing over and over and over during this phase of life. Kids need consistency and they need repetition. Your job, especially when you start out, any job requires lots of tedious tasks. You gotta do the same thing over and over and over and over and over until it comes at your nose. Yeah, we gotta do this again. Yeah, we gotta do this again. You keep after it. You do it and you do it and you do it and you get better at it and you build perseverance. You see, you have to be faithful in every one of these stages of life with what God has put right in front of you. We always wanna ignore what is right in front of us and reach for the next thing. I don't want this, I want this next thing down the road. But what happens is we haven't passed the test. We haven't been faithful with with what's in front of us. You try to race ahead and you you never get there because you're not faithful with the thing in front of you. So in this phase of life, you learn perseverance. And you need that perseverance Because as your kids grow up and you get older, you start to lose your stamina. You start, your energy starts to drop and you forget your motivation. So the perseverance you learned early on now is needed in in loads of perseverance. You stick with it. You gotta cross the finish line with your marriage. You gotta cross the finish line with training your children, even to the last one. You don't slack off with the baby. How many families have you known that have several kids? And the first kids, boy, they had, I mean, uh, all the principles were there in full effect, and then everything is great, and everything just looks picture perfect, but they get to the baby, and they're like, oh, what's, what's going on with him? I don't know, I mean, he's, he's over there eating a bag of Cheetos. Yeah, that's supper. Uh, <laughs> What's 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 he doing for uh, what's he doing for homeschooling? Well, uh, YouTube, I think. I don't know. I don't know what he's doing. Um, you slack off with the baby. You slack off with the last couple of kids because you've you've you haven't persevered. You give up on all of your early convictions. Everything that you believe so firmly early on, you just you just let it go because you haven't persevered. No. You acquire perseverance to get those kids across the finish line, to train them, to educate them, to discipline them. And then as they start to fly out of the nest, you work on contentment. You, again, you always need patience. You always need perseverance. You always need contentment. But here in this phase of life, you need contentment. Working on contentment in the work that you have done, contentment and joy in your children, joy in your spouse, joy in your home, Because as those children start to leave the nest, you are gonna need all kinds of contentment. As you get to middle age, it hits you that all this time has gone by and you have to come to grips with the fact that, well, I guess I am who I am. I'm never gonna be somebody else. This is it. This is who I am. And my life is pretty much what it's gonna be. This is my life. It, It hits you. Yeah, this is it. And you can, in that space, give thanks to God for everything that he's done for you and to, and, to, and to look for new ways to give and to serve and to pour yourself out with the time that you have. You're not, you're not sitting on the sidelines of the soccer game anymore. You're not chauffeuring kids around in music lessons. Uh, you've got all this extra time. What's a new way to pour myself out? But see, if you didn't learn patience as a young adult, and if you didn't learn to persevere with your kids and get them across the finish line, and if you didn't cultivate contentment in your life and home, you hit middle age and everything starts to fall apart. You, you aren't happy with anybody, you're not happy with anything. Nothing is right. Everything is wrong all the time. And it's so common, it's sad to hear about men who hit the stage of life and they just start acting like a teenager again. You know, they buy a, buy a motorcycle or a Corvette or something and in a foolish way, they just, they, they're profligate uh, with their life and they, they're super immature, they leave their wife for a secretary, they throw everything away. It's also common to hear of women hitting this stage of life and becoming so bitter, so angry and ungrateful and discontent with everything. You can't even reason with them. You can't even reach them. Why do people do this? Why do they get this way? It's because they didn't bear fruit in their seasons. When God directed them to do this, not that, as he did with David. No, we're not doing this, we're doing this. This is what I'm giving you. This is, what, this is how, David, this is how I'm building your house. This is what I want you to focus on. When God does that with us, we don't find joy. Don't dig in, don't participate in that. And instead, what happens if you do that? You get angry and feisty and irritable and ungrateful and your house falls apart. All those co- convictions you had in your 20s, all those, all, those, all those principles you had, it just blows away like the dust. Now if that's you, I mean, if, you if, that, if any part of that describes you, if you've been upset, discontent, angry in the season that God has you in, Well, all you can do right now, you can't make up for lost time. You can't go back and correct things five years ago, 10 years ago, but you can take hold of what God has put in front of you right now. Paul wrote in Philippians four, he says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Here's another word, you you hear content and you think, oh, I hear that. You just want us to not have any ambition. You just want us to not try things. You want us to not take risks. No, 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 that's not what content means. Content doesn't mean passive. Content doesn't mean having no ambition. Uh, David learned to be content. The apostle Paul learned to be content. And he says, be content. And both of those men had lots of adventure and took lots of risks. They They were in life and death situations. So contentment is not boring. Contentment is not lack of ambition. Contentment means joyfully pouring myself into the clearly assigned duties that God has put right in front of me these duties which prepare me for the next phase of life, prepare me for the next season of life. This is how God builds our house. This is how he builds up our lives. We're not doing this, we're doing this, we're over here. This is how he creates a legacy of faithfulness from generation to generation. And our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren are incorporated into the heavenly Jerusalem if he builds the house. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, They labor in vain who build it. So this is the Lord's work on your life. This is how he builds up your house as he incorporates your house into his house, as he incorporates your children into his house like he did for David. Now, I'm not applying the Davidic covenant to each of us individually, not at all, but these promises that God made to David are ours as a people. God the Father has fashioned us into a new family, a new nation. He's the house builder, Hebrews 3, 4. He's the house builder who has done this. And he has taken initiative to build this house through the events that we celebrate at Christmas. This Christmas, we rejoice that the Son, Jesus, has made his home with us and in us. In in John 1, 14, we read the the word has has made flesh and has dwelt among us, that literally tabernacled among us. He's took up residence in us and with us. We have this mutual indwelling. The people are a dwelling place for the Son. He lives in us, and the Son is our home. Jesus and his people are our true home. Not some misty, sentimental dream of a home that never was, a home that never will be, but a reality, a real house of people made for his glory. So in this season of rejoicing, However God is building your house right now, whatever stage you're in, whatever season you're in, stop, rest, light a fire, put your feet up. The Lord has given you victory over his enemies and your enemies. Rest in the work that he is doing with you and for you now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. We are grateful to you for for building your house with Jesus at the center. It's It's the chief cornerstone you have you have made us living stones in this temple together with him. So we delight in that. We delight in the callings you have put before us in the families that you have placed us in. Teach us contentment in this, in this season of, of rejoicing, in the season of celebration. Teach us contentment and gratitude in these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.